Well, I'm Chad Vincent, for those who don't know me very well, and I'm officially declaring today that I'm officially old. <laughs> I had, a, uh, I had a, uh, one of my sons graduated high school, uh, Grant, and I feel really old about that. I feel like, man, I've tried to be the cool dad and be old, but now I'm officially going to just confess. Since church, you confess, right? I'm going to confess that I'm not cool. I'm old. But when my kids were uh, younger, it was really cool. My kids were younger. Uh, we enjoyed Friday nights. And Friday nights were a cool time for us because we always had movie nights. And we'd get pizza and Cokes. And when my boys, I have three boys. They're 18, 16, and 14 now. But uh, they always love movies with the underdog. Can anybody re relate with that, resonate with that? They would always pick a movie with the underdog. And as you know, the number one movie that comes in your mind when you think of underdog is Rocky Balboa, the Italian Stallion from Philadelphia, right? And so I remember uh, watching that with my kids. And see, it's not about boxing, guys. All you ladies out there who don't like boxing, I get it. It's not about boxing. It's, it's not about boxing. It's about Rocky Balboa, the underdog who overcomes all these odds to become the heavyweight champ of the world. All this opposition. Well, what happens to Rocky is eventually in Rocky 3, there's tons of Rocky movies. You can watch Rocky all day long. There, there's, there's never a doubt. And it's the same theme over and over and over again. But it never gets old. At least to me it doesn't. It's probably because I'm simple-minded. But here's, here's what happens in Rocky 3. He fights Mr. T who says, I beat the fool. Right? Mr. T's a bad man. And what's happened to Rock is Rocky's gotten a little bit, let's say, comfortable. Rocky's now, he's coming from the streets, he's had a tough life, and now he's got his house, he's got his kids, he's got the car, he's got everything he needs, and Mr. T comes out and challenges him. Well, Rocky has his trainer, if you remember, and what's Rocky's trainer's name? Do you remember his name? His name is Mickey. And Mickey, they're, they're kind of in this argument because Rock wants to fight Mr. T, but Mr. But, but Mr. T's coming at him hard, and Rocky's like, yeah! And Mickey, they're in a, they're in a bedroom in Rocky Three. It's a great movie. They're in the bedroom, and, and Rocky and him, they're getting tense. It's getting tense. And Mickey looks at him and goes, Rock, the worst thing has happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. And my boys go, mic drop. See, what he's trying to tell Rocky is you've gotten civilized. You've lost that eye of tiger. You've lost that passion. You've lost that conviction. You lost that drive. You lost that desire you used to have. That hunger. And Mr. T, he's hungry. See, my fear today, guys, as I talked to you this morning is regarding the American church, my fear is that we become civilized. I feel that in my own heart and my own soul that we become too comfortable. Can I say it another way? We become complacent. And I don't know if it's me getting older, but I feel that more and more in my own heart. This attitude of just complacency. And so my friend says this all the time to me. You know, the, the church, the universal church in the, in, the, in the world, let's be honest. I mean, they're facing persecution at an all-time high we know nothing of. 
But let me talk to you, the American church, the church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, the church called Fellowship Bible Church. Don't think for one minute, just because you're not facing persecution, you're not facing pressure. We might not be facing persecution in terms of imprisonment, in terms of beating, but don't think for a second you're not facing the pressure. And the pressure I'm talking about is our worldview is being attacked on the daily. Our worldview is being attacked on the daily. If you don't believe me, let me give you some examples of that regarding sexuality, regarding gender, regarding marriage, regarding race, regarding social justice. The culture's not being quiet. They're screaming at us. And that's called opposition. That's called persecution. And are we going to be, as the Bible says, tossed here and there on every doctrine? What's our worldview? What are we going to stand on when things get tough and challenging? Because just so you know, they already are. They're already challenging enough. And so what are we going to stand on when our worldview begins to get attacked? Because what happens, and this is the American church, not church, this is the American church. You know what happens when you compromise, when you become complacent? Do you know what's happened in the American church? Just so you know, we have plateaued. And now we're doing the descent. That's the natural drift. When you get complacent and you compromise and you lose that eye of the tiger, you lose that fight, you lose that drive inside of you, you see what happens? It begins to plateau, and it begins to decline, and then you've got all these churches on all these corners, and you know what they are? Irrelevant. And that's sobering. And that's what we look at this morning, is Paul is writing to these believers in Thessalonians, this Greek city. And reminding them, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. As he's writing them, he tells them two ways to handle. How do we respond to opposition, persecution, and suffering? And Paul's going to lay out two principles, two universal, timeless principles. He says, number one, is we've got to know the destiny of those who persecute us. We've got to know the destiny of those who persecute us. And number two, we've got to know the destiny of the persecuted church. If we're going to respond, we've got to know those things. And so as you turn to your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, pick up in verse 14, let me set the background for you. Remember Paul and Silas, they were making their way in their second missionary journey. They want to go up into Asia, but the Spirit stopped them, and they take a hard left, and they go where? To Greece. As they begin to go into Greece, they enter the city of Thessalonica. They enter the city to go to the synagogue. And what happens in the synagogue? They begin to what? Teach in the synagogue. The Jews, some of the Jews respond, some of the Greeks respond. So at first, it's a great reception. But then things change. 
Acts 17 tells us things change. And what happened, their experience begins to change because some of the unbelieving Jews and some of the unbelieving Greeks, what did they do? They began to form a riot and a mob because they were jealous. So pick up with me in verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judah. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Verse 15. Who killed both Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all humanity by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So also to feel the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So right from the beginning, you catch the first word after the guard clause, after the four, he says what? Brothers. See the familial tone? It's a family order. He says, brothers, you've been called out. You're the church. Ecclesia, Ecclesi. You're the church. Ecclesiology. You're the church. You've been called out. You've been called to live what? Differently. To face life differently. He says, brothers, you've been called out of this. And now you've been included in something. And here's the catch. Once you've been called out of something, there's benefits of being the family of God. And there's what? There's cost to be in the family of God. So this, brother, this word brothers means there's a family-oriented sense. You've been called to something. You're part of a bigger story. Isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves? Larger than just me? Aren't I here for more than just me? And that's what he reminds us. He says you've been called to something bigger than you. By the word brothers. Then he goes on and says in the next phrase, become imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judah. You become imitators. Let me tell you that word imitators, that's not an active sense. It's not like follow me like I follow, follow you. No, it's passive. Now, because you are the church, you are going to experience some things. You become imitators of what? A bigger story of the church that's been in existence all the time. Now he goes back and says, hey, wait a minute. Your experiences, you're going to resemble something. And so the question we got to ask is, what are we going to resemble? Because now you become imitators. He says, imitators of, finish the phrase, of the churches of Jesus Christ in Judea. What did those churches experience? Question mark. What did they experience? You see where we're going? What did they experience? Passive. What did they receive? Do you know the answer is? Look at verse 15. What's the answer? Suffering. Opposition. Persecution. See, he reminds them, you have, are going to experience something. And what you're going to experience is opposition, persecution, and suffering. And so now you're part of a bigger story that goes back. 
because the Judean Christians experience the same thing once you become a part of this church. Therefore, stay with me here. Therefore, please get this. Your experience is not unique. Did you hear me? Your experience is not unique. This opposition you experienced, adversity, this suffering, it's not unique. You know what it's called? What's it called? Normal Christianity. It's called biblical Christianity. There's got to be a theology of what? Suffering. Did you, did you, are you sure you're with me on that one? Please stay with me on that one. That's huge. See, what you experience in our minds, we think what we experience when we suffer, we persecute, it's uncommon. It's unique. Nobody ever done this before. I'm the first one. I'm blazing the trail. That's a lie. It's a lie. But when we're suffering, if you're like me, I'm just being transparent, full disclosure. I think my suffering is unique to who? Me. And Paul reminds us it's not unique. This is common to all the churches. In all since humanity has existed, suffering is not unique. When we believe the gospel and experience Christ, guess what you're going to receive? Empowerment, no doubt. Love, no doubt. Forgives your sins, no doubt. Community, no doubt. But guess what you're also going to experience? Suffering. And he reminds this young church, young church, don't miss it. God's got a wonderful, beautiful plan for your life, but don't miss what's going to involve. Everybody with me? So remember the question, how are we going to respond in the midst of ongoing opposition? And the first point is we have to know the destiny of those who persecute us. And Paul, like a lawyer, begins to lay out the case. It's like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. He lays out bullet points to show you, let me show you where the destiny of those who persecute you, those who oppose you, those who are adverse to you, let me show you what happens to them. Number one, they reject God's messenger. They reject God's messenger. Look at verse 15. It says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So Acts 17 again tells us something. It tells us something very important. We learn about the cause of the opposition was who? The unbelieving. The unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Gentiles. They opposed them. Why did they oppose them? Because they were what? Jealous. And when they were jealous, they did what? They drove them out. And then what Paul does, he connects them back to a bigger story. This is huge and significant. He, can't, he builds a case and goes, hey, let me show you something. Let me build the story for you and show you the jealousy that they experienced back then and you're experiencing now. It's been there since the beginning because they killed who? The prophets. They killed who? Jesus. They want to kill who? Paul and Silas. Today, what's going on? They want to oppose who? You. You see the line of progression, the progressional fault? You see what's happening and what's going on? He's drawing their attention. 
to the fact that you're part of a larger narrative, a larger story. And this story is significant. And if they persecuted Jesus, and they persecuted the prophets, and they want to drive Paul and Silas out, guess who's coming next? And that's the mindset of those who persecute us. They want to what? Drive us out. So right there, think about that. Right there, think about how do you handle when you look around the world and see evil winning? When you look around and it feels like everyone is winning but who? The righteous. Do you get discouraged? Do you want to give up? Do you want to compromise? See, that's the tension that's going on. And it's not uncommon. Habakkuk said the same thing. He said, the law looks like it's paralyzed. The justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, and so the justice is always being perverted. See why this young church needs encouragement? You see why they need instruction when you look around and feel like everyone's winning but who? But you. What makes you hang on and remain faithful when everything around you is showing you the opposite? So, number one, they drove us out. Number two, they did what? Look at verse 15b. The second charge against those who persecute the described next phrase, they displease God. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul says, hey, live a life that pleases God. The characteristics of those who persecute us is what? They live a life that displeases God. And they experience affliction and persecution because you know why they live a life that displeases God? Because they've already made their mind who they're going to do what? Who they're going to serve. They've already made their mind up who they're going to serve. If you displease someone, that means you're pleasing someone else. And Jesus says you can't serve who? Two masters. So in this context, whose mind, they made up their mind, who they're going to serve. In this context, you know who it is? It's Caesar. Why is it Caesar? Because he provides what? Stability and security for the empire. And so he's talking about pleasing. They made their mind who they're going to serve. See, those who persecute us, their characteristic, the case Paul's building is they are going to please themselves and please Caesar. And Paul's saying no. And you see this by Acts 17. Watch what they say. Acts 17, watch what they say. Those who persecute, they say this. They, Paul and Silas, are acting against the decree of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. There's another king, Jesus. And when you stand up and say, no, there's only one king, Jesus, his name is what? King Jesus. What happens? Rejection. Opposition. 
and therefore the cross is foolishness. So do you see why the message? So at first you re they reject the messenger. Now they reject what? The message. And now thirdly, they're going to not only oppose the messenger, not only oppose the message, but now hinder the message from doing what? Getting out. Now they're going to oppose the message from moving forward. Here's the next phrase. God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. You see Paul's progression? See, it's one thing for me not to believe it, but another thing to make sure I silence the voices so you will never be able to do what? Hear it. So now what they're going to do is they're going to control the narrative. They're going to silence the voices and control the narrative. And when they control the narrative, there's only one message getting out. And it's the wrong message. And we call that what? Propaganda. And now what happens is that's where they're living. And I think it's very similar to where you and I are living today. The same situation is going on. They control the narrative. So therefore, when you speak up, they try to do what with you? Silence you. Because they don't want the truth to get out. And that's real life. And that's what's going on here. And now God says, hey, in verse 16b, I've got you. See, hope's coming. So once he lays the case out for the, the destiny of those who persecute you, he's about to show you what's going to happen. In verse 16b, as Paul concludes the case against those who persecute the church, he assures the reader they we will be held what? Accountable. Meaning, at the end, they're not going to do what? Win. They're not going to win. And that's encouraging. You see what happens here? Verse 16 so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So if we're going to respond faithfully and endure the opposition of what's happening, we've got to remember the destiny of what's the persecuted of their sins. And God has not. He hasn't forgotten it. He hasn't overlooked it. He hasn't dismissed it. He hasn't minimized it. He hasn't rationalized it. He said, man, I am going to deal with it. And that gives us great what? Hope. That gives us great hope that one day Christ will deal with this. Because what happens naturally in us, we get so discouraged, we want to give up, and then we want to do what? Inflict what? Revenge. You with me? We want to take matters to our own hands. He says, no, trust me. God will deal with it. And it's guaranteed because the next phrase, we just read it, but God's wrath has come upon them. And watch the last two words. At what? At last. And they go, whew, thank goodness. He's going to deal with it. It's like when you give someone a lot of rope to hang themselves. Right? That's the deal. I've given you enough rope, and now you've hung yourself. So your action is going to have what? 
consequences. And the consequences will end in God's judgment of them. And that's what you got to keep in mind. So when your mind thinks they're winning, they're actually not winning in the end. In the end, you're going to win. And that's what keeps you persevering. That's what keeps you moving forward. And that's why I love Rocky Balboa. Because do you know what the key line of Rocky is as well? Nobody is going to hit you as hard as life. It's not a matter of how hard you, what, hit. It's about how, what, you get hit and keep moving, what, forward. How much can you take and keep moving, what, forward. See, Rocky's theologian. I call the theologian Rocky Balboa. The theologian, it's about how much you can take and keep moving forward. you got to feel the passion of the text. If you don't feel the passion of the text, you'll sit here and you'll fall asleep. Because these chairs are what? Comfortable. You've been working all week. You're tired. Your wife's driving you crazy. Your kids are doing this. Wake up! Because you get comfortable and all of a sudden your eyes will start going... This is real life and real stories. Forget Rocky. Solomon said the same thing. He said what? The righteous man falls how many times? Seven. And what does he do? He gets right back up. Life is going to hit you right in the face every single day. And what are you going to do? And if you're like me, you like the easy road. I just quit, hang back. Right? And that's not an option. And what drives them, that's why you get the next chapter or next verse 17 so important because now he switches. He says, Now stay with me. Because when you stay with me, you're going to get 17. And now you're going to see the destiny of those who. The destiny of the persecuted church. See, Paul loves these people. Look at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see your face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan did what? He hindered us. See, absence makes the heart grow what? Fonder. And that's why he wrote the letter in the first place, because he loves these people. These are his people. These are his people. And he wants to be with his people. And he wants to be with them. You know why? Because when someone's hurting, what do we naturally want to do with them? We want to be beside them, because what's that provide? Encouragement, support. It helps them to know they're not all alone. We're with you, and we got you. And that's what Paul's saying as a brother, as a father, as a mentor, that, hey, I got you. You're not alone in this. I love you. And that's why he sent the letter, to show them his love, to challenge them, to stay faithful. I'll do what? I'll carry your burdens. I'll help you. Life's hard. Life's too much. I got you. I'll carry your burdens with you. 
Your presence communicates something to that person. And so at the end, do you see the enemy we have? But Satan hindered. That word hinders a military term. You know what happens when you're on a military conquest? You blow up roads, you take out pathways, so they can't do what? They can't cross. And that's what happens spiritually. See what Satan does? He tries to do what? Do you see it? Isolate you. Blow up the pathway so no one can get to you. So you're on an island all by yourself. There's no access to you. Because he wants to do what? Seek, kill, and destroy. But that's not the end of the story. Look down with me at verse 18. So once Paul shows his affections for them, he's going to affirm them. Once he shows his affections, he's going to affirm them. And he says, because I want to see you, I want to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered me. Verse 19, for what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, it was worthwhile for me to show up and invest in you. It was worthwhile for me to start this church because you're my what? You're my best student. You're my star athlete. You're my faithful son, my faithful daughter. And I look forward to the day when I can do what? Present you to who? To Christ. And say, look. Look at my church. God, it was worth showing up for the planet. If not for one thing, these Thessalonians. If not for one thing, Fellowship Bible Church in Murfreesboro. It was worth showing up on the planet because look at my people. Look at my people. Look at them, Lord. They have hope. Hope does what? Hope says, I believe in you. I'm confident you're going to what? Remain faithful to the end. I don't know about you, but in my life, when someone believes in me more than I believe myself, that gives me incredible what? Courage. Maybe you're not here yet. Maybe you are here yet. But the gift you can give your son, and, the, and I came from a crazy family, dysfunctional family, but I tell you what, my mom and dad gave me the greatest gift. And you know what it was? They believed in me. Until this day, they still believe in me. And they're not together, they're divorced, but I'll tell you one gift they gave me. They always believed in me. And that gave me what? Confidence to move what? Forward. In the midst of opposition. In the midst of everyone who's doing what? Hating. It gave me confidence to move forward. See, not only hope, he says, now you're my hope, but you're also my what? My joy. That means I'm pleased in you. That means I'm proud of you. When you look someone in the eye, eyeball to eyeball, and tell them you're proud of them, what do they do? Or they're my kids. They go, oh, no. See? It makes them do what? Shoulders roll back. 
People love to hear it, man. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. At the baptism of Jesus, what did he say? What did God the Father say? I, this is my son who I'm what? Well, well pleased. I'm proud of you. There's no joy of now being a little bit older as a dad to hear maybe Owen in college. If I ever hear this, I'll be proud that he's doing what? He's doing the right thing. He's showing up to class. He's being responsible. He's treating girls with dignity and honor. He's managing his money. You can trust him. He's a man of his word. You know what I'm going to do as a dad? That's my boy. So joy. And then the last one is a crown. A crown of what? Glory. A crown of glory. And this is an athletic event. You would give a champ a crown. In a military conquest, you would give a general a crown. This would give him a crown. And what he's saying is, you're my crown of glory. You're my reason for boasting. If I boast in anything, I boast in you. And I'll tell Jesus, the day he arrives, I'll tell Jesus, have you seen the Thessalonians? Have you seen my people? And you know you do the same thing. With whatever it is you boast about, you do the same thing. You see my truck? Oh, boy. She can get it now. You see my boat? That thing can go now. You see my muscles in the gym? Woo! We do the same thing. Boasting. But now you're changing and you're boasting in what? Something that what? Eternally matters. He's saying, look at them, man. Look at my people. Look at Fellowship Bible Church in Murfreesboro. Look at them. Go ahead. Brings a smile to my face. It was worth it. All the opposition, all the hard stuff, it was worth it. I don't know about you, but having three kids in diapers, it was hard. I wonder sometimes, was it even worth it? I wanted to walk out many of the days, and I did. I walked out going, Lord, is it even worth it? I'm not sure it's ever going to end. And then one day it ends, and you get nostalgia. You start going, man, I sure do. This sounds crazy for young parents, I'm sure. But you go, Man, I sure do miss those little knuckleheads. I miss coming home and my wife being crazy. You don't think of the time. You think about anywhere but home. But now you go, I miss those. I miss those people. I miss them, man. And that's the context Paul's doing. Because one day you're going to walk into the house and just be you and your wife. And Paul's going, man, you're my crown of glory. You with me this morning? So let me drive this point home. Let me drive it home globally, and let me drive it home locally where we are. Because if we're going to be encouraged, we've got to know the destiny of the persecuted church. The church is Christ's what? His hope. It's his what? His joy. His what? Glory. I don't know about you, but globally... Two places that are being persecuted most is China and Iran. And let me show you what God is doing there. In Iran, there's an estimated 84 million people in Iran. And they are surging in persecution, in opposition. They are surging at 20% per year of growth, of Christian growth in Iran. One church leader said this. 
who was recently arrested, every minute of every day, I'm aware of God's utterly tangible presence in interrogations, in solitary, in the prison yard. They repeatedly humiliate me. They force me to clean filthy toilets, all because I am a Christian. China, the same way. China is experiencing the same explosion of growth. By 2030, they're saying there will be 20 million Christians in China. 20 million Christians in China. And many of them are being persecuted because they don't follow the state ideologies. They're being persecuted. So that means they don't get aid. They get monitored. They're on surveillance all the time. And they get in their, their pocketbook. They take their money away. They garnish their wages. And so one pastor was caught online because of COVID. Obviously, everybody's going online. And, and his wife wrote a letter that said this. He's been in prison effort for going on a couple of months. She says, my reasoning makes me believe that he's still alive and that God is with him. However, not hearing from him is like an enemy. It hurts so bad, I suffer every single day. That may seem distant to us, but that's reality. Can I bring it home closer to where we live? So we don't experience the persecution, beating, imprisonment, interrogation. But what we do experience is anti-Jesus. It's cool to have Jesus, but he can't be what? Lord Jesus. King Jesus. It's cool to have God, but it can't be the God of what? The Old Testament. It's cool to have truth, but it's cool to have your truth and not what? Absolute truth. And then can I tell you it plays out even more? And then what happens is these are gospel issues, guys. This is how we don't become civilized. Compassionately, graciously, with tears in our eyes, we bring the gospel to people. It's hard. To family members. And we talk about marriage. And we say we believe marriage is between one woman and one man. We talk about gender. And we say there's two distinct genders, a male and a female. Because I say it, I'm submitting. Sexuality. We go, it's best to not have sex before you, right? It's best to have sex when? After you get married, not what? Before. But you'll get with people in the younger generation. I'm just telling you, they don't see nothing wrong with it. And then you'll find out they're living together. You go, huh, you're living together. And then talk about what? Is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God? That feels like hate speech. Is there, is there a little place where God actually judges and will send people off to hell? Ooh. See, now we're getting to the American church. You see what the issues we're facing? With compassion, with grace? What do we do with those issues? What do we stand on? And those are gospel issues. What do we do with gender, sexuality, race? Because we believe in race. We believe what? Man, everyone's made an image of God. Everyone's made an image. They have dignity. They have worth because they just did what? They breathed. That's all they did. No matter what the color they are, they have worth. And that can feel like being interpreted as hate speech. Just being honest. 
So we have a choice this morning, don't we? We have a choice. What do we do? Do we stay faithful to gospel or do we compromise and give in because of the pressure? So to the sole word, let me ask you this question. What areas of your faith do you need to keep watch over so you don't become civilized? During the sober this morning, get some time and follow that. What areas of faith do you need to watch over so you don't become civilized? Thanks for your, your word. Thanks for your truth. Thanks that we can trust you. Father, we all experience daily the pull away from, from you. We experience in our heart a desire to compromise, to concede, uh, to grow complacent. And what it might look like for us is just just paying the bills, going to work, and making sure everybody's fed. And Father, there's so much of a bigger story that we're a part of. We grow the most during difficult and challenging times. And the ideologies we're facing in our world, the worldviews that are coming upon us on the daily, whether on the news, on the radio, on the TV, even our own thoughts, Lord. We have to renew our mind. We have to remember these things are gospel issues. And so we have to wrestle well with you so we don't go to apathy that will be like the writer Proverbs said, even though we fall seven times, we'll get back up because we'll know how much we loved and the reason and the purpose that we're living for. And so we're willing to handle hardship, adversity, opposition, 
because in our hearts, we have nowhere else to go. We believe it to that extent. The Bible knows nothing of cultural Christianity. The Bible knows nothing of cultural Christianity where we come to church to try to earn some favor of God. That's just basically heretical. It's not true. So, Father, would you encourage us this morning through Paul's words to these Thessalonians, would you encourage us this morning that you're going to deal one day, you're going to make things right. Even though it appears that we're losing, the fourth quarter hasn't come yet. The last two minutes of the game hasn't been played out yet. Would you give us hope, joy to hang in there? Knowing that in the end, it's all going to work out. And you're doing a great thing in our own hearts. You're teaching us something about ourselves and about you. Because Hebrews tells us that you never leave us nor forsake us. So this morning, may we grab onto that truth. Amidst all we're facing from the outside world, and may we be the church. May we impact the world for the good, the good of humanity. May people miss Fellowship Bible Church if we were wiped off the face tomorrow because of the good works they did, the love they had for the community. May we be a light in a dark world. Christ, I pray. Amen.